Let's open with a, a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is exciting, humbling, and a little bit scary to be asked to fill in for Pastor Glenda. Um, I don't know how you do it week in and week out. It's really an inspiration from God, obviously. Colin, would you stand up for just a second? Please, please. Okay, so I wore what Colin always wears because I was going to make a deal about us being Twinkies, and he wears jeans today. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Sit down, Colin. Sit down. But I, <laughs> I wore shoes. I, I do have colorful socks on, but they, they match, though. They match, so that's not Colin either, so... But I didn't dress like Colin today to be his Twinkie, would have worked, um, but to provide a stark contrast, which is symbolic of truths in my life, which I've slowly come to realize are incorrect. They're wrong. You see, black and white symbolizes an or connection, a, a exclusive difference, a separation a physical object can obviously have uh, can obviously be just one thing or another almost always it's either a loaf of bread or a rock it's a fish or a snake using the examples that Jesus used but an idea or an issue or a situation involving people i think is seldom cut and dried black and white is it good is it bad is it healthy is it unhealthy uh, is it helpful or is it hurtful human to human relationships experiences, interactions, relationships are, are usually in that gray space, not black and white. They are an and connection, inclusive of multiple opinions, observations, experiences, viewpoints, emotions. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, outside Kansas City, Missouri in the 60s and 70s. Uh, yeah, it's a while ago. As a product of that time and Midwestern uh, social environment, I was raised to believe and accept as the absolute truth the racist, patriarchal, homophobic Christian rhetoric of the time. Positions which were definitely or. You were either white or black-skinned, and white was right. Male or female, and males had all the power. Straight or gay. And to this day, I can remember how the ultimate high school locker room put-down was to call a teammate a homo. And because of the Bible passages which refer to same-sex behavior, it was clearly understood that a person had to be either a Christian or gay. There was no possibility for and. Over the years, my walk with God has challenged all these positions, and, well, it seems I was wrong. Fast forward through years of marriage, work, raising kids, and Susan and I found ourselves close to retirement. A couple of key things happened in the last few years which have had a profound impact on my beliefs with respect to the LGBTQ community. First, I learned that a nephew of mine was gay and in a same-sex relationship, and that a niece of mine identified as queer. Then, in a youth group Bible study I helped with, a student came out to me as transgender. <laughs> to me? <laughs> These revelations were cathartic 
shaking uh, profoundly my, my confidence in normalcy of friends and family and the world around me. What was God wanting me to do with these new situations, these different relationships? We retired, moved here to Round Rock, searching for a church home. Susan and I realized we'd finally had enough of Methodist churches run by old white guys. <laughs> you see, <laughs> so see, see, I'm married to a woman who I've known forever to have been to be far and away my intellectual superior. So, so these patriarchal walls, they've been kind of crumbling for a while. Anybody else relate to that? <laughs> Don't worry, you will. It's okay. Um, and and I worked for a long time with, with folks of every nationality, um, race, colors, and thankfully my indoctrination into racism and bigotry was melting away as well. So we landed here at Journey of Faith, uh, firstly because of the friendliness of all y'all, that's plural, all y'all, <laughs> who truly welcomed us with open arms. But we were also drawn to Glenda's female leadership, to the diversity of the congregation, and to the intriguing idea that this is an affirming, inclusive body of Christ. So before I know it, in my continuing journey, I found myself signed up for the study group, which is reading and discussing the book, Walking the Bridgeless Canyon by Kathy Baldock. To say that this book was eye-opening would be a tremendous understudy, understatement. Sorry, Everyone in our group has said something like, wow, I never knew that. <laughs> and certainly I've had scales fall from, from my eyes. Then when Glenda <laughs> asked me to share a message today, and it being Pride Month, and we just had a Round Rock Pride celebration, I certainly heard God tell me that this would be a great opportunity to share some of my learnings and discoveries from the book study uh, with you all today. So scanning back through the book, I got kind of nervous. There's a lot of stuff in here. See, see how big this is? It's a big book. And, and I thought maybe I should learn some more on the subject of God, Scripture, society, and same-sex relationships. So, so I bought more books. <laughs> I've, I've read a couple of them already, and, and now I'm really nervous. The more I come to know, the more I know I don't know. So today I'd like to share with you a few of the aha moments that I've had during our study, reading these other books, and review briefly the six key Bible passages which have led to condemnation of gays and lesbians for so long. And at the end of the service, we're going to put up a list of references uh, if, you want to, if you want to glance at those. So by education, uh, training, and professional experience, I am an engineer. So it's in my nature to seek data and information to gain insight. In the last couple decades, there have been significant advances in scientific study of same-sex and transgender orientation, resulting in much new data and information. And this speaks to me. For instance, scientists now know that our 23rd chromosome, XX for female or XY for male, there's that or word again, will actually, in one and maybe 1,700 cases, carry along an extra X or Y when the cell divides, resulting in a third sex called intersex. And it's, a, it's an and, characteristics of both male and female. 
Further, they've learned that the genes in our DNA have little, what they call epigenes, little temporary on-off switches that influence the hormones estrogen and androgen, female and male, resulting in male and female fetuses in utero, which can have both testes and ovaries. And these variations can even lead to ambiguous external genitalia. Other studies show that as a mother births multiple sons, boys, hormones can build up and each subsequent son can be 33% more likely to be gay. And brain scans show measurable differences, <clears throat> excuse me, measurable differences in the brains between homosexuals and heterosexuals. There's no clear consensus on the root biological causes of gender and sexual orientation, but scientific studies continue to indicate that it is hardwired into us to be gay or straight. Our orientation or identity is with us from birth. It is not a choice we make. <clears throat> Ooh, that was really loud. I apologize, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Allergies. Our orientation is simply who we are. In a broader sense, bigger picture, none of us are exactly alike, just like the kids and I were talking about. In fact, the world is a creation of unfathomable variation. It's not hard for me to imagine that the God who made such a varied universe would create in us the mechanism for variation in sexual orientation as well. Thank you, Colin. One moment, as you were. <laughs> oh, big help, thanks, sir. But society sees things differently. Efforts mostly in the 20th century to fix gays and lesbians have taken many forms, some horrific. The most consistent method used by traditional, non-affirming, meaning they don't affirm, Christian groups has been what's called reparative therapy. Practices designed to get a gay person to see the error of their choice to be uh, same-sex oriented and switch to being straight. Thankfully, these efforts and groups promoting them have now almost entirely shut down based on overwhelming failure. One study of over a thousand ex-gays showed that only 0.1% of the reparative therapy participants maintained a heterosexual orientation. The other 99.9% .9 reverted to their prior same-sex orientation. And the emotional harm done to these individuals by reparative therapy can be catastrophic. You can make a left-handed person use their right hand, and they might get pretty good at it, but they'll always be a left-handed person. <coughs> oh, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do that without doing that? Okay. <laughs> I won't do that. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. Okay, so let's look at those six, I apologize. Let's look at those six condemning scripture passages. Three in the Old Testament and three in the New. Hit the next slide, please. Go one more. Go one more. Thank you. Okay, Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11, tell the story of the two angels visiting Lot in the town of Sodom. And the men folk of the town gather in the verse 5 says, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. And the rest of the story is how Sodom was destroyed for its evil, but Lot and his family uh, were spared. Non-affirming, traditional Christian interpretation of this passage concludes that same-sex behavior is a sin. 
And so it seems from the story. But is this narrative about a nurturing, monogamous relationship between two same-sex partners who love each other? Or does it describe imminent gang rape? Which is the evil? And in the cultural context of life at that time, unfortunately, women had extremely low social status. So for a man to rape another man was to cause the victim to take on the role of a woman, essentially to spit on him, to ridicule, embarrass, degrade him in the worst possible way, truly an evil thing to do to another man at the time. So the book of Leviticus contains rules for behavior for the Israelites. Chapter 18 covers rules on sexual relations, relations cataloging numerous incestuous situations. Verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In historical context, at least a couple factors mitigate this seemingly obvious command. First, just as we heard with Genesis, lying with a male as with a woman means a man takes on the degenerate role of a woman, a cultural abomination at the time. Secondly, with no birth control at the time, like we have now in modern times, marriage and procreation, as instructed by God in Genesis 1, were inseparable. Thus, an act of sex without the possibility of procreation was seen as blasphemy, wasting the potential for having children and possibly even the survival of a family. Similarly, Leviticus 20 describes various adulterous situations and the penalties for such. And verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. Here the death sentence is prescribed for both the dominant and the passive party. And again, in the context of the time, this behavior was unconscionable because of the female role one man forced another man to assume. Now, I do find it interesting that Leviticus also says things like, don't eat pork or shrimp, and women must cover their heads and a whole bunch of other stuff. There was a contextual purpose for these prohibitions at the time, but no one thinks of applying them now. I love bacon. I love shrimp. I love bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, maybe does, God, maybe does God want me to discover not only what the Bible says, but why? These laws, why are they there for the people of the time and for me? Note that all three of these Old Testament passages refer to actions, behaviors, and not directly to sex, sexual orientation as we know it today. Along those lines, one concession that some non-affirming modern churches are willing to allow along the lines of love the sinner but hate the sin is to recognize same-sex orientation in a person but prohibit a person from acting on it. Don't sin by doing the forbidden behavior. In a practical sense, that person is sentenced to a lifetime of celibacy. The church has always revered and honored an individual's calling to live a celibate life. Jesus and Paul were celibate. Paul says celibacy was best, but if you can't control your lustful desires, get married for crying out loud. And for heterosexuals, responding to the call of celibacy represents a choice, not a mandatory life sentence. I wonder, 
How could a loving creator who wants a personal relationship with me require of someone else a lifetime without the possibility of intimate relationship with another person? Before leaving the Old Testament, we've got one more um, concept. It's way too large to really explore here. Uh, it needs mention, though, and that is the idea of being created in God's image from, from Genesis. And what is a, a word that is called complementarity? Complementarity. Or the concept that anatomically, a man and a woman fit together. You all know what I mean. There are many... There are many, many sides to the argument, which says complementarity proves same-sex relationships and marriage are sinful. God didn't design us that way. In his book, God and the Gay Christian, that's this one, Matthew Vines says, if we tell people that their every desire for intimate sexual bonding is shameful and disordered, we encourage them to hate a core part of who they were created to be, separate them from our covenantal God, and we tarnish their ability to bear God's image. Again, it's a, a different and a very difficult conversation, but I've got to ask myself, what is God's bigger purpose for humanity, for human relationship, for the love between two people created in God's image? Turning to the New Testament, <clears throat> Our first stop is Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 read, For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. In the same way also the males, giving up natural intercourse with females, were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. As with the Old Testament, here too, Context is crucial. Paul is writing to who? To the Romans, to, the, to Rome, in a society where Greco-Roman norms dictated things like gender hierarchy in heterosexual marriage and allowed habitually the practice of pederasty or men having sex with adolescent and teen boys. It is this giving in to excessive sexual urges to which Paul primarily refers as unnatural. Paul is railing against those who have abandoned God for a life of lustful excess, of hedonistic self-indulgence, of exploitative sexual conduct, not for two individuals in a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship. In the final two passages from 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, Paul includes in lists of lawless behavior, along with murder, adultery, drunkenness, lying, etc., what the New Revised Standard Updated uh, Edition translation reads as illicit sex, and other translations refer to this as homosexual behavior or men who have sex with men. But the NRSVU includes a footnote that the actual Greek terms used here are not clear. The Greek words do not directly refer to a loving, consensual, same-sex behavior. Ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Latin didn't even have a word corresponding to the modern English term homosexual. It didn't exist at the time. And it wasn't introduced into Bible translations until the middle of the last century in the late 1940s. In other words, this is a relatively new interpretation and translation influenced by modern norms and beliefs making these two passages 
problematic at best. Randy, go to the next slide, please. Thanks. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. The scripture uh, Heidi read for us from Micah says, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness, or love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So did Jesus break the law and sin by healing the man's withered hand on the Sabbath? Or was he fulfilling an overarching need for mercy and love of neighbor that transcends the law? In our text from Matthew 22, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Everything, all the Old Testament laws are covered by these commandments of love. Jesus shows us a bigger picture. And finally, from Galatians 3, Paul, uh, verse 28, Paul says, There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you, all of us, are one in Christ Jesus. I wonder if they had had the terms homosexual and heterosexual back then, would Paul have also said, and there is no longer homosexual or heterosexual? Paul Vines states, Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships. And, and that's my challenge is to discover that, that and possibility, Christian and gay. As humans, we are made to be in relationship, to be and inclusive. We're all in this together. We're all children of God, all made in God's image. And if I believe in a God who is big enough to create the universe and everything in it with all its variation, and yet who knows the number of hairs on my head and loves me and wants to be in communion with me, how could that God possibly want me to not love those who are LGBTQ? Those who are simply different from me. It's a lot to think about, a lot to pray about. My journey continues. Love my God, love my neighbor. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.